It's an old question. An agency awards a services contract because of specific people the contractor promised would work on the project. Then one of them quits. In the ensuing protest cases, the Government Accountability Office and the federal courts seem to be of differing minds. We get more now from a late case from Smith-Pactor-McWhorter procurement attorney Joseph Petrillo. We had a protest case where the key personnel person left, and this was known to the agency, and they went ahead with the award anyway. What happened? Tell us more about this case. All right, so here's the, the situation. I, I, as you've mentioned, uh, when the government's buying services, it's customary to evaluate offered key personnel. And it's very clear that when a bidder proposes someone for work on the contract, the bidder has to have a good faith belief that that person's going to be available. But what happens when the person becomes unavailable after proposals are submitted? And there, as you alluded, the Government Accountability Office and its bid protest decisions say that the offeror needs to inform the government of the unavailability even after proposal submission. In a recent decision we discussed a few weeks ago, one judge on the Court of Federal Claims said, no, there's no such obligation in the statute or the regulations. So we have this uh, differing view, and it's illustrated again by this recent decision in the Selkie Consulting case, a JO bid protest decision. It arose from a contract competition by the National Reconnaissance Office, part of DOD. They were buying finance support services. They were looking to award a cost-plus-award fee contract. They did that through a best-value trade-off acquisition and had both cost and non-cost factors, which were weighted equally. In the non-cost factors, the most important sub-factor of the most important factor was key personnel. The issue we've been talking about here, that was an extremely important part of the evaluation and it became the subject of the protest. KPMG, the incumbent, won the contract. Another bidder, Selkie Consulting, protested to the GAO. The the evaluation showed that Selkie's evaluated cost was about, you know, four or 5% lower than KPMG's, but KPMG had higher uh, ratings in the non-cost factors. And one of the non-cost factors that weighed in favor of KPMG was this key personnel that worked for a subcontractor. Right. And that turned out to be pivotal. It was the only sub-factor where any offeror had received an exceptional ranking. And in the source selection decision, it was identified as the distinguishing factor that determined contract award. So it was crucial. But that person then, yeah, so what happened with that person? Sure. So the person resigned while offerors were being evaluated, but after proposal submission. And NRO became aware of that because KPMG is the incumbent contractor, notified them that the person who was also working on the contract was resigning. Even though NRO had received that information, it was after proposal submission, and so they did not take it into account in making the award decision or in evaluating the proposals. After Selkie protested, however, GAO sustained the protest and held it was unreasonable for NRO not to consider the unavailability of the person that it knew about. 
We're speaking with Joseph Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. And earlier you said that in another case, the court had taken the opposite view, that it was immaterial, basically, to the award that a key person on the bidding had left. Could the difference be the criteria of the agency? That is to say, in one case, could the key personnel have been more important in supplier selection than it was in the other case. And that's why the GAO and the courts differed? Or is there some fundamental disagreement here? There was some discussion of the um, court case in the GAO decision. GAO pointed out one important difference between the two, and that is that in the court decision, there was no indication the agency was aware of the unavailability. And here, the agency was aware of the unavailability. So GAO felt that that was a sufficient difference to distinguish it. But they also were very clear that they're not obliged to follow the decisions of, of a, a single judge on the court of, of federal claims. And so they're going to be going their own way, it seems. All right. So getting uh, back to this particular case then of NRO and Selkie versus KPMG, Selkie protested. It was sustained by GAO because of the departure of that person from KPMG's team. What happens next? Well, under the GAO bid protest decision, the recommendation is, is that NRO has to choose one of two alternatives. One, either reevaluate the KPMG proposal without the person who's become available, unavailable, and that's one of four key personnel, or reopen the procurement and allow all offerors to submit revised proposals. Or find um, out where that person went to work and then get them to bid. <laughs> well, uh, presumably that's not an option because the, the procurement's ongoing and the number of offerors is, is set. But uh, it, these these cases raise really, really interesting policy decisions and policy uh, implications. If you look at GAO's position, their feeling is, well, how can we have a good evaluation, uh, rational evaluation of proposals, if the one of the most important factors, if not the most important factor, is based on a situation that's not true, that's not valid. It, it may have been true when proposals were submitted, but it's no longer the case. But on the other hand, you've got a situation in the regulations, as the Court of Federal Claims pointed out, where there's a deadline for the submission of proposals. Proposals are submitted, and there is no real mechanism for one offeror to modify his proposal or substitute out an important aspect of performance while the government's doing the evaluation. If you set up this rule where you have to notify the agency of the unavailability of, of someone. Well, you've got a situation there where the agency's put into a very difficult position because it has to decide, well, are we going to kick this offeror out of the procurement or put it in a situation where it's highly disadvantaged in the evaluation? Or are we going to reopen the procurement for, for amendments and modifications by all the offerors in the competitive range? And potentially go through multiple rounds of bidding and evaluation. So it, it's a it's a difficult decision with no clear good answer under those circumstances. Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. Again, no resolution, but we'll see what happens. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. 
I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you no, know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see 
a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense. And I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.